Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Someone said to us this week, we're hurtling towards Paris 2024 Olympics and Paralympics. And after the week in Liverpool for the World Gymnastics, maybe tumbling might be a better phrase. What are championships for Great Britain? And six medals were won. The women and men's team qualified their place in France in two summers' time. I'm John. And I'm Michael, and this is Anything But Footy, the Olympic and Paralympic Sport Podcast. And this is the reason we set it up. It's not just about the two weeks in Paris in the summer of 2024, and then the two weeks of the Paralympics after that, but it's what goes on in between the games. The cycle, as they call it. And with that Qatar thingy coming up in a couple of weeks, beginning to dominate already, the back pages and, quite rightly, the front pages as well, what a time to be here in the UK as the Rugby League World Cup continues apace with the arrival of the women's and the wheelchair competitions. Also coming up in this episode, as well as our news from the Games headlines from the sporting world of Olympics and Paralympics, after the huge arts cuts, could sport be next? And we know Milan is up next too, but where will the Winter Olympics be staged in the 2030s? With the cost and climate change rising, we have an idea. As ever, you can join in as well. Tell us what you think. Get in touch at Anything But F on Twitter. We're at Anything But Footy on Insta, on Facebook, our website, anythingbutfooty.com. Or you can email anythingbutfooty at gmail.com. Now, Michael, there's something about a major city hosting a major event. Beforehand, anticipation, excitement. As the Liverpool beat poet Roger McGough once wrote, and I learned this in English, when I was a wee young lad. The time I like best is 6am. London 2012, I remember walking up the steps at Westfield, going to my broadcast position in the wee small hours. It was a remarkable moment. Birmingham 2022, walking around the streets of Birmingham when nobody else is around is quite incredible, apart from the street cleaners. And Liverpool, the World Gymnastics Championships, had that feeling as well. There is something about being up early and being at a major event. Well, the majority of people aren't there, of course. As I mentioned, you've got coffee makers, you've got staff working hard. Even the games makers with their foam hands or their bobble hats in Liverpool's case. Uh, I absolutely love those, by the way. Can I have one? Uh, if, if anyone can send me one, that would be great. But you're up before all these people and you're you're seeing something that nobody else is seeing. It's exciting and it's fresh, and it's new. And the reason I wanted to bring that analogy to you, if you like, is that that's how I'd kind of sum up British gymnastics at the moment. Because yes, it was a home championships, the World Gymnastics Championships in Liverpool. Yes, it's a city that welcomes world-class sport. And yes, we went to Anfield and Goodison, and we saw the new Everton Stadium on the Mersey while we were there. But this is the most successful gymnastics world championship ever for Great Britain. Six medals, that's a record. Two world champions who simply walk the talk, literally, on the floor. The two teams booking a place at Paris 2024 as well, winning women's silver 
and men's bronze. Jessica Gadarova was absolutely superb on the floor. She was crowned world champion on the ninth and final day, a very apt way to finish. Her routine was described to me as being flawless, and she won the title by 0.300, and that was an incredible achievement. The way she dances the elements and presents it with a huge smile on her face, you can't help but be involved. Even though you're a home crowd, I think she would have that appeal anywhere in the world. And the way she lands tumbles... Well, frankly, just wow. The 18-year-old also won all-round bronze, the first British woman to win a medal in the all-round as well, with Alice Kinsella, her teammate, in fourth. And the history didn't stop there, Michael. Gianni Regini Miran, someone that you've met and spoken to, we've spoken to a lot on this podcast, won gold in the men's floor final. He's the first ever gold medalist from Britain in that apparatus. And what a comeback for the 24-year-old who battled through serious injury earlier in his career. I say earlier in his career. He's only 24. And boy, does that mean that Paris and hopefully LA is something to aim for as well. Courtney Tullock won bronze in the rings. Again, the first Brit to win a medal ever in that event. So the greatest ever world championships since the last one we hosted on home soil in Glasgow in 2015 when we won five medals. You know what I'm thinking? We've said this before. Paris is a virtual home games. So we're looking good uh, ahead of Paris. One thing that I wanted to bring up, though, with you, um, being in Liverpool, I mentioned a few days before the championships, I'm not really sure you would have known they were happening. I was excited. I could feel it. But it was a bit like a big pop concert at the M&S Arena. Um, it was like Ed Sheeran was playing there. So people who were going there knew it was going on, but I'm not sure anybody else did particularly. I did think the staging actually in the arena was outstanding. There was a huge giant scoreboard and video screen right in the middle above the apparatus. It was something that was not in Birmingham. Um, and I actually thought this staging was better than Birmingham 2022. Also, the seats, you felt really close to the action, um, which was which was really, really impressive. But the question I have on gymnastics, and apart from getting your view on it from a, from a casual spectator, um, in the age of equality, is the music still needed for women's gymnastics on the floor? So I mentioned Je- Jessica with a huge smile on her face. She interpreted the music and part of her, her tumbling. But Gianni doesn't have music. And when I saw that in the Commonwealth Games, when you, you, you watch the men's, it's very much on, well, who are the tumbles and then a few kind of bits in the middle. Is, is the music important still or is it irrelevant? Now, my view is that with breaking coming into the Olympics, and we'll talk about that later in the podcast, it's that actually it, it should be as part of the, of gymnastics. It brings something, a bit of a dance to the gymnastics as well. It's not just about how many tumbles and turns and twists you can do. And I wonder whether actually we should look at the, I should change the question, Michael, and say, isn't it time men did music in, as well as the women? You know, we talk about, and you talk about the staging of the event, and I do think the staging of the World Gymnastics and everyone that was involved in that staging should take absolute credit. And we've spoken about staging of sporting events in the past. We remember in Doha, the World Athletics Championships and the way they staged that in terms of the light show mm. and the lasers and the and the music and everything else. So, yeah, 
absolutely more music, I think, more innovations where the staging comes in, in terms of the lights, the fireworks and everything else. Let's take this away from just the sporting arena. Let's make this entertainment. Let's make it a good show in the arena mm. and a great show on television for people as well. And, you know, so as I said, I've never really thought about it before. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't see why not. The other thing I'd just sort of add to, to what you were saying there is, once again, I think we've seen with, with British gymnastics, if you go back to, to Lewis Smith winning a medal in Beijing in, in 2008, and you think how young the likes of the Gadarovas were then, mm. back in 2008. So what are we, 14 years on from that? They were four. So they probably don't even remember it. But before that, you know, it was very, very barren times in terms of medals for British gymnastics. We had Neil Thomas, who, you know, was on the Olympic and the world stage. But... It was it was a really sort of difficult era for, for British gymnastics for a long, long time. And then we have seen such an acceleration in the program to being one of the leading gymnastics nations now. And it's a thing I'm, I'm thinking about a lot at the moment. How long does it take a sport to go from kind of zero to hero? Mm. Because when I think back to London 2012, we had handball teams, we had basketball teams, volleyball teams all entering with a the right investment with the right structure behind them. Could we now be talking about Great Britain being contenders in those sports or am I being overly optimistic? We've seen it with gymnastics. We saw it with Taekwondo. We've seen it with triathlon. Triathlon only made its debut at the Olympics in Sydney in 2000. 22 years later, there's no better nation on the planet than Great Britain. And gymnastics proves you can do it. Even a heritage sport it doesn't have to be a new sport. Because, as you rightly say, all that history that I talked about, about the World Championships, and we saw Max Whitlock making history in Rio, didn't he? When he won yep. the, uh, the the gold medals that he won there. And so I think you're right. And I, interestingly, and we haven't really mentioned it in the podcast much, but Rugby Sevens, for example, the RFU, which is one of the oldest sporting organisations in the world, has now actually created GB Rugby. Um, and, and, and appointed a new performance director and they brought Scotland and Wales and, and England together for GB rugby for the Olympics to try because yes we had success in Rio and you were there watching that but it didn't quite work out in Tokyo and it is very very difficult to change these as, as the the world of football has found with the FA it's very difficult to change these huge heritage organizations to create something where actually, as you say, you could go and win a, a medal and, and GB should be winning Rugby Sevens medal. So let's add that to the list. But I think one of the sports that you mentioned is basketball. And I saw it in the Commonwealth Games and the staging of 3x3 I've talked to you about so many times was, was immense. But what we want to now see is British basketball getting back on a, on a world level. And we know, for example, they were at the Europeans earlier uh, this year and didn't win a match, finished bottom out of 24, I think. So it does feel that that's a, a long way to go. And it, and it may be, maybe not Paris, definitely not Paris, probably not LA, but are we talking Brisbane? Or beyond, for example. And, you know, you were talking there about um, rugby, rugby sevens. And while you were in Liverpool at the World Gymnastics, I've been following the Rugby League World Cup. And we say thank you to the organisers of the Rugby League World Cup for inviting me uh, to go and see Tonga against the, the Cook Islands. I've really 
enjoyed um, the Rugby League World Cup. I think, again, when you talk about the staging, it's been imaginative, the men's tournament, the women's tournament and the wheelchair tournaments all happening concurrently. I've been disappointed with some of the crowds and I think there's been an issue over some ticket prices. And certainly the game that I went to was at the Riverside Stadium in Middlesbrough. And it was a really disappointing crowd. And I don't lay all the blame, actually, at the organisers of the Rugby League World Cup. I think... You know, there was a competitive bidding process for host towns mm. and host cities to come forward and say, yes, we want to stage a game. So I mentioned that game I went to in Middlesbrough, the Tees Valley Combined Authority. They bid, they lobbied to try and get a game to Middlesbrough. I wonder what happened next then. Why, why was the crowd disappointing? Why didn't the people of Teesside, the Tees Valley get behind that game mm. in the way that I thought that they would. And I remember, you know, driving up and I took my eldest daughter. She'd never been to a rugby league match before. I took her. I thought I'd introduce her to the sport. And I, I was so surprised about how quiet it was. And I think if you are a, a local authority or, a, you know, as we have here, the combined authority and you bid to bring these events you've then got to back them yeah. um, and you've got to market them and you've got to get people there. You've got to involve school children. You've got to go around the primary schools or you've got to go around the local grassroots clubs and say, you know, come on, he, here's some subsidized tickets or we're going to buy up a load of tickets off the Rugby League World Cup organizers and we're going to distribute them to children and we're going to create an atmosphere and, and make it an event. I think what I've seen from the wheelchair rugby, I don't think the men's tournament had, had kind of caught a light just yet. We're into the knockout stages as we speak now. And I think it will as obviously home nations get forward and, and go on in the competition. But I think what I've seen of the wheelchair rugby league, which we know is different to sort of what we see wheelchair rugby in the Paralympics, the wheelchair rugby league has been absolutely phenomenal. Mm. I think the copper box on the Olympic Park in London, home of, of London Pulse, as we know, it's shown again what a brilliant multi-sport arena it can be. It hosts the London Lions basketball, hosts London Pulse netball, and now the Wheelchair Rugby League World Cup as well. I think that's been terrific entertainment. And if, if my social media Twitter feeds are anything to go by, and they're not really, to be honest with you, <laughs> um, I think certainly the Wheelchair Rugby and the entry of the Wheelchair Rugby onto the into the tournament has certainly upped the ante somewhat. Yeah, I, I agree. It's been absolutely incredible to see it on BBC Two as well and, and watching that and just in the, the way that they smash into each other it is absolutely incredible and of course as we know from speaking to John Dutton on Great British Bosses on Anything But Footy we know that it is a, a, a total equality sport women can play yeah. you don't need to necessarily be in, in a wheelchair um, all of the time to play the sport either so um, but it obviously is great for for disabled athletes too so yeah no hopefully england will carry on they've started really well in all of the competitions i think we're into the men's semi-finals now aren't we um ahead of this weekend it would be nice that all if they could all get to finals wouldn't it yeah just final point there you mentioned um bbc tv coverage which i think both for the rugby league world cup and the and the gymnastics actually um i found quite hard to follow where I was meant to be watching some of it. Some of it was on BBC Three, some of it was on BBC Two. And I, I spoke to someone who's involved actually in the organisation of the World Gymnastics and said, you know, why did we have some on, on BBC Three, some on BBC Two? I don't run the BBC. I don't know what their scheduling department's like. And they said, well, the BBC switched some, some coverage to BBC Two because it was rating so well on BBC Three. And I just think that there's a, a lesson this year for terrestrial television, which is British sporting success 
on terrestrial TV, whether that's Lionesses, whether that's the Commonwealth Games, whether that's the World Gymnastics, people will watch it mm. and people will want to watch it and they want to watch it in real time. So stick it on your main channels. Yeah, you're absolutely right. For, tr- working out whether rugby's on one, on BBC Two or BBC One or BBC Three, the gymnastics, the, the men seem to be on BBC Two, the women seem to be on BBC Three. It was very odd. It was very odd programming. Um, but as you say, hopefully we'll all learn lessons and we'll um, we'll take it forward into into the next next year, 2023. We've got some great sporting events coming up and also, of course, Paris 2024, which is not that far away as we've been talking about. Still to come, for art's sake, could sport funding in the UK be affected by the recession? And a winter Olympic solution from Michael as well. First, though, some news from the Games, and John's been talking gymnastics at length. Two-time Olympic medalist Bryony Page heads the GB team, heading to the World Trampoline, Tumbling and DMT Championships in Bulgaria. The 30-year-old Rio and Tokyo silver and bronze medalist is aiming to become the first British trampoline gymnast to win back-to-back world titles. There will be a team of 22 in action in Sofia. For the first time ever, Great Britain has two world number ones in the sport of judo. Chelsea Giles, Team GB's first medalist at Tokyo last summer, is now ranked top in the world in the under 52 kilogram category. Despite the issues with lockdowns in recent years, Giles, who won bronze at the Olympics, has also won bronze at the Minsk European Games in 2019 and six International Judo Federation World Tour medals as well, including gold at the 2021 Tel Aviv Grand Slam. She joins Lucy Renshaw, who remains number one in the world in the under-63 category. 11 British swimmers will be aiming for more success at the World Short Course Championships in Melbourne in December. Adam Peaty, after his comeback at the Commonwealth, will join world champion Ben Proud, who has to be on the shortlist for Sports Personality of the Year, by the way, along with Olympic medalist Tom Dean and Anna Hopkin in the 25-metre pool event. Tokyo medalist Luke Greenbank and European medalist Abby Wood also flying out. 17 British divers, including European and Commonwealth champion Andrea spendalini Syriex, flying the other way around the world. They're off to Canada for the World Junior Diving Championships in Montreal at the end of this month. More headlines from the sporting world to come. But first, after the huge cutbacks to some arts budgets announced by the Arts Council of England last week, the likes of the Donmar Warehouse and English National Opera losing funding entirely, we wondered whether Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak are promising, of course, more cuts in the budget next week. So whether sport could actually suffer as well. Now, December 2021 doesn't seem too long ago when UK Sport confirmed an extra £11.2 million of funding for the Paris 2024 Olympics and Paralympics. An increased investment across 33 sports and more than 100 athletes added to the world-class programme. Now, look, there is no suggestion that that money is in danger of being taken away. But with every penny being counted and justified as inflation rises... Are we wrong to assume that this will just carry on, Michael? Well, it's interesting. You say December 2021 doesn't seem too long ago. Uh, We had a Queen back in December 2021. I don't know what Prime Minister we were on. Uh, I'm not sure how many Chancellors of the Exchequer we've had since then or how many Home Secretaries and whether we've had Home Secretaries that then resigned and then came back even in that time. It it doesn't seem that long ago, but an enormous amount has changed, hasn't it, um, in that year? I don't think sport should be recession-proof. And I think in a country where... 
you know, we have an increasing reliance on things like food banks. Um, it sometimes seems to me that the cost of a medal, uh, an Olympic and Paralympic Games, it is hard to justify. That said, um, I do think that sport and not just elite sport and the medal moments at the Olympics and the Paralympics, but, you know, you can look at the trickle-down effect of those. I do think there is a place for sport. And, and the mathematics that needs to be done with whoever is the Chancellor of the Exchequer by the time this goes out. I mean, it could be different <laughs> to the time we recorded it. Who knows? But the, the mathematics that needs to be done is the equation between the benefit in terms of physical health, mental health, in terms of the long-term health and robustness of the National Health Service. Mm. If we give up on sport, maybe at an elite level where we are talking about inspiring people, if we give up on sport at a mass participation at a grassroots level, what is the, the firework that we are potentially going to unleash down the line for the National Health Service, which you know is already struggling with the demands on it at the moment? So I don't think um, sport should be immune um, I think sport should play its part, as we all need to cut our cloth accordingly. Um, should a special case be made for sport? As I said, I think it, it boils down to that equation, those sums. What does sport bring to the country? What does sport bring to the economy? What does having major events like the Rugby League World Cup, do they add up? Do they make sense mm. economically, financially? You know, what's the benefit there? And, you know, what are the, the wider benefits in terms of things like social prescribing? Um, and, you know, the general health and well-being physically and mentally of the nation. I think also as well, bringing sporting events to this country, as we've talked about Liverpool, we've talked about the Rugby League World Cup. Yes, it's great for us as fans to be there and see that. But the standing in our, in the world, we we show that we can put on these events and, and make them successful. Um, and actually, that's good for our overall impression of what's to, to other people in the in the world and I think we, we sometimes forget that that people look at our UK sport program look at our uh, world athlete program look at team GB um, look at us staging the rugby league world cup I remember the 2015 rugby union world cup as well the euros uh, apart from what happened at Wembley on the last day um, but they look at us and go the men's Euros. Yes, the men's didn't Euros. Didn't happen at the women's Euros, did no, it? No, that is fair. That's a fair point. Um, but they look at us and go, which they never used to 20, 30 years ago, uh, that the Brits can deliver. And actually, that helps our reputation in in the wider world. So I think that is an important part of, of some of the funding that, that the UK sport have as well. But I, I agree with you. I think just to assume that it's going to carry on is, is, is not the right way. It has been building since 2012. And rightly so. And we talk about Paris. It's a home games. We, we we have to make sure, and we will, I'm sure, that we're going to deliver success in Paris. Um, but then you get into different time zones. And we, we saw it a little bit with Tokyo, Michael, and, and Beijing, that, that time zones make it more difficult. Um, you, you're not watching wheelchair rugby at, at eight o'clock in the evening on BBC Two um, when it's going on in LA or Brisbane, are you? And, and that is... No. That's the slight issue, I think, maybe um, when you're when you're looking at well, how much money is going. And and you mentioned different chancellors, different PMs. Any idea who the the sports minister is these days? Any idea who the? I mean, I think Michelle Donnellan is still the culture secretary, um, but she's changed since December 2021, as you rightly say. So 
It's it's very much. I I'm sure I I don't need to speak for anyone who works in the sporting industry at the moment. It's probably head down, uh, just keep out of it and uh, and and see what happens at the moment. But fing- fingers crossed that Paris doesn't get affected too much. There's probably an arts um, podcast going on called Anything But Pop Music or something yes. which concentrates on ballet and um, you know other disciplines of dance, and they're probably banging the drum for their sector in the same way that that we are banging the drum for ours. Absolutely. Back to our news from the games. I've always said Norfolk, Michael, is the centre of the world, as you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but huge congrats to another wheelchair tennis youngster from the county who's been named World Junior Player of the Year, like fellow Norfolk boy Alfie Hewitt, Ben Bartram, who's 17. He's a student at a local college and he seems to have a big career in front of him after winning six senior titles in a row this summer. Not junior titles, senior titles as well. Well done to him. And we talk about big events coming to this country. 2023 will be a huge year uh, for cycling with the Combined Cycling World Championships coming to Glasgow. And the Paracycling World Championships are taking place in the venue of the Paralympics in 2024. Uh, well, they saw British Cycling have their most successful championships to date. 28 medals, wow. including 20 world titles. Paralympic champion Neil Fucky, who's uh, shortly uh, just become a dad recently as well. Congratulations to the Fuckies. Uh, he won the men's tandem sprint with his pilot, Matt Rotherham. James Ball with Stefan Lloyd and former Paralympic sprint champion on the athletics track Libby Clegg with her pilot Georgia Holt won the tandem team sprint Dame Sarah Story Kadina Cox Sophie Unwin and Jodie Cundy also all won golds too on a glittering few days how many years are we going to continue talking about the likes of Jodie Cundy and, and Dame Sarah Story what they are doing time after time year after year just to, to keep coming back and keep being the best in the world is, is phenomenal yeah absolutely um Demi Jade Retsan won bronze at the 2022 Women's European Boxing Championships after a semi-final defeat in Montenegro. The 25-year-old was the only member of the seven-strong British squad to get on the podium, though. Uh, Shona Whitwell and Rosie Eccles just missing out. We have a new sport and some new names to learn and some new moves, too. (laughs) I'm less sure about that i'm <laughs> more sure about the new sport and the new names but breaking is making its olympic debut in paris and manchester recently staged the european breaking championships at the weekend karam singh who is known as kid karam won silver in the b-boy at the bellevue basketball center french b-boy dani winning the gold you're gonna to have to get used to it now big news about the 2030 winter olympics this week with vancouver's bid hitting the rails in canada after british columbia's government said it would not support it it is actually staging some football i think in um in the years in the next few years and also um the invictus games is going as uh, is my understanding as well but they are saying that they they haven't got the money for the for a bid for the winter olympics in 2030 japan's sapporo was seen as the front runner but of course with uh, allegations around tokyo and costs rising again 17 billion uh, they reckon is the latest for the winter olympics in sapporo and also climate change having an impact there was a serious question mark over the viability of nations staging the winter games so michael you've come up with a radical plan yeah i think when you look at the summer games i think there's still despite the size of them and despite the logistics of staging a summer games i still think there are 20 to 30 cities on the planet that would be interested in hosting the summer games and could 
host a summer games. I think we're going to start seeing some cities coming around again and again, and we're going to start seeing maybe an increasing reliance on going to some of the same countries. But I think I'm fairly confident that we are going to have enough cities stepping up to host the summer games. And I think the way the IOC do it now, where we don't have the beauty parade as we did when London bid and won in 2005, where they enter into a dialogue with an interested city or an interested region like Brisbane and they award the games. I think, I think that blueprint seems to work. I do have this concern about the future of the winter games. And, you know, I think it accelerated certainly in, in Sochi in 2014 and the amount of money that the Russians did to build what was essentially a winter sports Disneyland mm. um, to create this kind of um, resort, if you like, in Russia, where the president used to like to, to go and spend some time. And I think that was the sort of feeling behind it. And again, Beijing threw money at it and, you know, they imported the snow that they needed yes. into the mountains and they, they built these big venues for things like Big Air. And it was an imaginative setting, having covered those games for radio. But long term, how many places, how many cities are going to be able to to do that? And actually, I think the only countries, the only cities, the only regions that probably can do that are in places like Russia and China, where there are obvious and huge question marks over whether we should be taking the games, Mm -hmm. whether we should be staging the games in countries like that for many and various reasons that we've discussed in the future. So is the solution maybe for the Winter Games? And I remember people putting this forward in the Summer Games after Sydney in 2000, that everyone said was just perfect. Is the solution a permanent home for the Winter Games? Should we, you know, just build the park for all the events, the disciplines, the bobsleigh, the skeleton, you know, where we've got the mountains, the ski jumping, the big air and the snowboarding and, and all the rest of it? And just take the Winter Games back there. Now, that could be Switzerland, where the International Olympic Committee are based. Mm -hmm. I still think, obviously, the money um, that is generated by the Games should be distributed, you know, around uh, the world, not just to the the big successful winter nations, but they should still be, be generated. Or do you move it to one of the Scandinavian nations, for example, Sweden, Finland, Norway, somewhere with a history and heritage where people will, will come out. Could that be the way of, of the Winter Games surviving? Mm. Because the likes of, and we saw them stage the Olympics early in the Olympics uh, kind of career, if you like, like Stockholm, for example, uh, staged the Summer Games. Um, it's just something that's never going to happen now, is it? The, the likes of, of, as you mentioned, Sweden, Norway, I'm never going to stage a summer Olympics um, and the winter Olympics, as you say, has this magic about it. It is totally different from the summer games um, and the sports. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking to some amazing athletes who week in, week out. And we, this is the whole point of this podcast. Week in, week out are training to achieve something. Um, and these sports are not any profile at all but they're absolutely remarkable and i think it's it's really easy for us to just say oh well the winter olympics is probably gonna come to an end climate change is changing and whatever but i i think you're right is it one location i think switzerland like team gb are one of four nations who've been in every single winter olympics and summer olympics since it started in 1896 so 
could be there, as you say, or is it a, a Nordic countries combination? So Oslo, Stockholm, and, and you have certain events in certain places, which would spread the cost of it, Michael, as well, because it's not just about staging it, is it? It's about getting people there and it's about then um, making sure that it all happens. And, and fact, to have one country in charge of it, um, yes, you get some money from it, as you say, and you would distribute that equally, but it does cost to put it on as well. So could you have Copenhagen involved as well and, and the likes like that? Just to, to give it some certainty, because well, 2030, so Canada have pulled out Japan are kind of like, oh, I'm not really sure about this. I think Salt Lake City is also up for, for, for 2030 and every connotation that that brings, although they do have everything built already, is is my understanding. Um, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's a question mark that I think people, and I don't think we should be afraid to have the questions and say, well, just because the Olympics has always been done this way and this is how we've done it, we should carry that on forever. Yeah, and I think the other benefit, if you can say, of having like a permanent home for the Winter Games, I think in terms of it would then be a proper legacy venue because it could be uh, events could be staged there in the intervening years between the Winter Olympics. It could be used for, you know, members of the public could go and, and use it. Of course, we, we see in London members of the public using the Aquatic Centre. Mm. There's no reason why elite sporting venues can't also be uh, venues for local communities. We can also then offer it as a training venue to nations. And I think, you know, you'd have to have some rules in place that the, the nation that was perhaps, you know, the the host, the permanent host, weren't just allowed to train there all the time <laughs> and everyone else just got a couple of hours in the run-up to the next games. But I think some of those developing winter sport nations could benefit from that and therefore make the Winter Olympics more of a competition, more countries, more nations winning medals because there's a more equal playing field in the build-up to the games you know something like the olympic village could be used obviously you know around the calendar in terms of a hotel or yeah. as a training facility it, it just seems to me to make sense otherwise i think we are going to get into the, the case with the winter games where we are you know have a very very limited selection of, of countries nations looking to try and and host it at the cost and you know we know at the minute and we are talking at the minute about the cost we're talking about you know an oncoming recession here in the uk and whether sport should cut its cloth accordingly um i think the winter olympics might have to to do the same and i totally agree with you there is nothing wrong with asking these questions and maybe coming up with a radical solution if you want to get in touch and have your say as well anything but f on twitter or you can message us on insta anything but footy we're on facebook as well email anything but footy at gmail.com anything but footy.com is our website if you just want to tell us yes agree let's let's put it in one place or absolutely no you know we have to have the opportunity for nations to be able to stage these events if they want to but like most things in life the olympics and paralympics feels like it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But as Michael said, the cost of living, recession, war ongoing in Europe, deprivation, repression elsewhere in the world. Should it? And maybe it's time to say we don't actually have all the answers, but we should ask the questions and we should try some new things. Lots to ponder for all of us as we continue our build-up to Paris 2024. <laughs>
Social Podcast Network.